Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row, a summer edition. It is uh, a little balmy where I am, not complaining, especially when you compare it to those god-awful winter months. And uh, I will tell you that we are joined today by an extremely special guest, someone who I'm going to say I grew up, and I'm not saying that to age you, sir. Uh, but I certainly grew up listening to sports radio as it exists as a medium to you. Uh, I moved to Vermont, as we were just talking about off air, in 1990 and spent a lot of time on satellite radio and, and spinning the dial in Boston and XM and all kinds of places. And one of my favorite radio hosts, if not my favorite, the favorite radio host, has been Tony Bruno. Tony, how are you? I'm good, Jonah. Thank you. That's very flattering. Uh I haven't been, I've been to Vermont, but I haven't been to St. Albans, but I do know the Catamounts and the great John LeClaire, the pride of your Vermont Catamounts and one of the greatest American hockey players of all time, as they say in Canada, eh? That's right. And I was uh, fortunate enough to attend the U at the same time as both John LeClaire and also Martin St. Louis, and then perhaps the goalie that many people don't like to talk about, Tim Thomas. Exactly. That's, a, that's right. We forget about Tim Thomas. Well, not some, some people do, other people don't. It's sad because as great as he was, you know, sadly, the one thing that people remember is that he refused to go to the White House when That's they won right. the cup. And that became the big deal and, and I guess cast a, a pall all over the Tim Thomas legacy. I, not to me, but I guess to some people it did. So most importantly, how, how are you and the lovely Miss Robin doing? Everybody's okay? Yeah, we're doing great here. I mean, you know, we're in Philadelphia, the birthplace America, of America, but the death of democracy town. You know, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not a political guy. I goof off, I mostly do sorry, you know, sarcasm. People don't get sarcasm these days. You have to be careful because if you say something sarcastic, people don't know. You have to put sark on stuff all the time. And it's hard to have a conversation and say, don't you know, sark. You don't say that, <laughs> you either no sarcasm or you don't. And if you don't know the person that you're speaking to, it's really hard to be sarcastic. So. You know what I do, and hopefully your audience, I'm not expecting everybody to know who I am, but we live they in a world. They know who you are. We, we live in a world now where you have to, if you say anything, you have to explain that you're joking around or else people will say, oh my God, did you hear what that guy just said? So I'm not one of those guys. I have fun and I always have, and that's how I've approached my career 50 years into this business now. Yes, I started when I was five. And so <laughs> I've always been have fun, treat serious things as serious. But for the most part, especially in sports, you know, sports is the candy store. Uh, except right now, it's an absolute disaster. It's, it's like going into a refrigerator that's been turned off after the summer and then realizing that everything's rotten. So that's the sports world right now because we don't know what's going to happen. We have some soccer going on, but it's about having fun. Sports is fun. It's supposed to be fun. The that's distraction. Why we watch it. That's why we can gamble on it. That's why people use it as an escape from the real, real world, but unfortunately sports is also caught up in the real world now, where normally it isn't. So, so you got your start in radio back in early 90s uh, with the legendary Al Morganti. I believe that was your second gig. And you were doing I all sports. I started in 1970 now. I'm telling you how old I am. My first job in radio was 1970 when I was 18 years old. So I started as a young kid out of Temple University. I was going to school and I got a job as an overnight newsreader because obviously I was going for journalism and political science with my majors at Temple. And so 
I was willing to just do anything. I just wanted a job. So I would sit at night in a little newsroom and it wasn't even a newsroom. It was a radio station that didn't even have a news department, but I was supposed to fill in during the breaks on the shows overnight. And so I would sit there and get the wire services, UPI and Associated Press, and I would rewrite stories and do a two minute news. That's how it all started. I wanted to be in radio. I wasn't necessarily wanting to be a journalist, but I was like, like, give me a job. So my first job was in journalism. I wanted to be a DJ and play music, you know, but I wanted to be in radio. So I did news and then I did, I did a lot of news in my first part of my career. And then I transitioned into sports because living in Philadelphia in the seventies, you know, we had the Flyers hockey team and they were big and the Phillies were pretty good and they were playing against Cincinnati and all those great Cincinnati Reds teams. So the Philly sports scene, the Eagles got Dick Vermeil. And then they went on to a Super Bowl. So I was growing, I was, I was in the infancy of the sports world when sports was really starting to pick up in Philly. And so I made the transition and say, you know what, sports is a better future because news departments were starting to go away. Radio stations didn't have big news departments except maybe one or two in a market that has an all news station. And so even the radio stations that I worked at, they completely eliminated their news departments. But I knew sports was always was gonna be there and I knew that Philly especially, doing it there uh, would be a safe career move. And luckily I was there at the right time when all the networks started building up and the ESPNs and the Fox Sports Radio, they were in their emphases. And Sports Talk Radio, as you mentioned, Al Morgani, here in Philly, WIP, which was the second sports station in America to convert from a music station to a sports station because it was the fan in New York, WFAN, and then WIP switched from music to sports and they hired Al Morganti and, uh, and Angelo Cataldi who were both sports writers at the Enquirer in Philly. But the guy who was really the first guy on the air there was Tom Brookshire, the former NFL great who played and he was actually Pat Summerall's first partner on the old CBS games before John Madden took over. So Tom Brookshire was a player, great player for the Eagles and he was a part owner of the radio station. And the reason the radio station looked to sports is because the owner, Ed Snyder, had the home, the Flyers and the 76ers, and he wanted a radio station so he can have his games on because the Phillies and the Eagles were all on one station and the Flyers and the Sixers were farmed out most of the time. So he bought the radio station, not to make it all sports. He bought it so that they can have the Flyers and the Eagles games on their radio station and then eventually added sports talk. And Tom Brookshire was the original morning guy. And then they hired uh, Angelo Cataldi and they called it Brookie and the Rookie. And the rest is history. Angelo then became a legendary figure. Al Morgani and I were his two co-hosts. And that show blew up. And it became not only the most popular sports station, it became one of the main sports main stations, period, in the city. That morning show went from, ah, it's a sports show, to one of the top three rated stations and shows in the morning in all of radio. Is Al Morgani still working in hockey at all? Because he used to yes. be... He used to be... The, the John Clayton of hockey for ESPN. Yep. No, he's always been, and he's always lived in the Philly area, as you know. I mean, he was originally from Boston. And when he and Angelo got together, Angelo was from Providence, Rhode Island. Al's from Boston. And so they worked in their respective markets. And then they wound up in Philly, and, and Al was covering the Flyers. And then ESPN, as you mentioned, hired him as an analyst. And then here in Philly, on the, it was Comcast. Now it's NBC Sports Philly. So when we have hockey, Al was a, a regular all the Flyers post-game shows on the NBC Sports uh, affiliate here in Philly. And he's still with Angelo 20-something years later on WIP on the morning show. And so obviously wow. those two guys have 
stayed there and they're still the dominant station as far as sports and probably still i haven't checked the late ratings lately but they're still a top three top four overall rated radio station and you know that's what it's all about in this business jonah people are used to something they get comfortable uh in this day and age where people are flip-flopping all over the place when you have that same comfortable voice like mike golick at espn uh -huh. people are used to hearing something they get up radio is a habit they get comfortable with some show and then they'll listen to that show and the, as long as the show's on for the most part people will stay loyal to it so i got slammed yesterday on twitter for for saying that in my opinion golick was a is a more talented broadcaster than his former partner mike greenberg thoughts well i know them both i mean mike and i are good friends when mike was playing for the philadelphia eagles back in that era when they had that great defensive line, I was covering the Eagles. So I would go into the locker rooms all the time. And Reggie White became a good friend, one of the all-time great defensive linemen, you know, all those guys. And so Mike and I became friends because Mike was that guy. And every sports team has it. The one guy when you go into a locker room or a clubhouse, whatever you call it, or the room as they call it in hockey, you go in there and there's always that one athlete, regardless of what happened, who was always great with the media. You know, Pat McAfee is another example he was the punter for the Colts but everybody knew he would give you a good quote so Mike was a jovial guy solid player and he'd always downplay his role and be you know he would be, he would be self-deprecating because obviously they had one of the greatest defensive lines ever and Mike was a part of it and he would say I'm just a guy who would pick Reggie White up after a sack and say good job and so everybody knew Mike was a talent and he had a future after football in broadcasting and so I got to know Mike, and then when I was working at ESPN in 1992, doing the over, doing the weekend shows with Keith Olbermann and Chuck Wilson, uh, I was there for eight years before Mike Golick was doing sports talk radio in Phoenix, Arizona, on a morning show there. So Mike retired after his career, and he moved to Scottsdale, and he started raising his family there. So I got to know Mike in Philly. I got to talk to him a lot in Scottsdale, and I knew his wife and his kids when they were tiny. And so Mike calls me one day and he says, hey, you know, I got a phone call and, and they're asking me if I would be willing to move to Bristol, Connecticut from Phoenix to do a morning show with you. Because I had been approached by ESPN. They wanted to expand the programming from weekends uh, to other day parts. And so they said to me, would you be willing, since you have morning show experience, to be a part of a new morning show here on ESPN Radio? Now, this is 1998-ish. Uh, after we had done the seven uh, seven weekends with Chuck Wilson, who's another great broadcaster from Providence, Rhode Island. So they hired Chuck, they hired me, and Keith Olbermann, who I worked with in 1980 in New York at RKO Radio Networks. So, I mean, it's a circle of friends that I got to know and I've known for a long, long time. And we all reconvened in Bristol, Connecticut to start ESPN Radio. And then fast forward, they wanted to do a morning show. And the powers that be at ESPN asked me, do you know anybody? that we can hire and bring in as a second banana. We want you to be our morning guy and throw some names at me. So I mentioned Golick right off the bat because I knew Mike would be terrific at it. And I knew he was getting the on-air experience doing sports talk in Phoenix, Arizona. So they called Mike and they said, are you interested? He called me and he said, what do you think? Do you think this would be worthwhile for me to move my family from, from Scottsdale, Arizona to Bristol, Connecticut? I said, yes, Mike. I said, this is gonna be a great opportunity this is ESPN. You know I see ESPN. They're not going away. They're the worldwide leader in sports. I think it'd be a ball to do the show with you. And Mike moved, and then we were the very first morning show at ESPN Radio back in 1998. 
What a crazy ride for, <laughs> for not just you, but like you, you were there at the infancy days of, of ESPN. Um, yes. You know, back when, 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 you know, Chris Lee and Chris Berman and what a crazy, crazy time. What was it like then? It was awesome because remember 1991, there was only ESPN. You know, there was no internet. There wasn't ESPN2. There wasn't ESPN News. So ESPN was the go-to television station in the country on cable. If you wanted sports, you watched SportsCenter. And SportsCenter became must-viewing television at 11 o'clock. And they had a lot of great talent who I was fortunate enough to work with. So they called me. I was working at WIP on the morning show in Philly. And Charlie Steiner, who I worked with in New York with Keith Olbermann back at RKO Radio, Charlie then was asked by the ESPN management, we want to start a radio network. Do you have any guys that you know or girls that you know that you would recommend to be a part of the ESPN radio network? And Charlie mentioned my name. So Charlie called me and he said, do you want to do this? I said, well, I'm working Monday to Friday doing morning drive in Philly. I said, so I don't know. And I had a young family. I said, I don't know about this. I don't know about working seven days a week. And they were only doing weekends, but I had to be up there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I said, you know, I don't think I want to, I don't think I, I should do, I mean, I, I don't think I want to do this. I'm worried about my kids. So he said, so he calls me back and he says, you're crazy. This is a job of a lifetime. You should come up and at least talk to them. So they fly me up to ESPN. I meet with them and they talk me into it. So I said, okay, I'll do it. This, you know, it wasn't like they had to twist my arm. This is ESPN radio. And they want me, Chuck Wilson and Keith Olbermann to be the original three men who you would hear for the very first time when they threw the switch and started ESPN radio in what January year was that of again? What year we So I went up there, we did it. And it turned out to be, you know, a, talk about great moments and important moments, not just in sports and just in radio, but as far as ESPN to be on the very first show, to be one of the first voices heard on ESPN radio is, it, it is an honor to be put into that company and in that stratosphere and working with all those people. So, you know, if, if, you, if you take a snapshot today and you look at sports in, in North America, you were at the epicenter at day one. Like you had, I think you were on the first show the first day, the first time ESPN turned on the radio network. Is that right? Yeah. I was the very first voice at ESPN radio. And that's, you know, because they opened the show, there was a jingle and Keith Olbermann was a great friend and obviously is a big time personality, but a guy that I knew since 1980, it was me, Keith and Chuck Wilson, so we were all basically the first voice, but my, first, my voice was the first one actually over the air. And again, does that make a big difference? No, I was just happy to be a part of a team that's launched the second entity in the ESPN family. Because back then, you know, it was just ESPN television, as great as it was. And so when we did those Saturday and Sunday night shows, for seven hours, 6 p.m. to 1 a.m., we had no telephone calls. There was no internet. There was no Twitter. Uh, so we basically got the scores, we would go live to a locker room. And back then, that's where you got the information from. You know, you didn't have all the games and the packages and the satellites and all the other things. So a lot of people were listening. And when they heard the updates on our quarter hour, or quarter after the hour, quarter till, they were hearing the updates live from games. And as soon as the game was over, we would go right to the locker room and get the star of the game on a phone line. So that's how it all started. But it became really, really must watch radio and must listen because we were on all over the country. And so to this day, how many years ago is that now? 20, almost 30 years later, 90 to uh, almost 30 years ago. There were people who were kids back then 
who remember. There are kids in college who listen to that, who are now adults with children. So there are generations of people who remember that show from ESPN Radio. And then, of course, you know, then I went to Fox in 2000. It was the first voice to launch Fox Sports Radio. And so it's been an unbelievable ride for me. Uh, now in my 50th year of broadcasting. So I've been fortunate to work with great people to be offered jobs at the right time. And uh, I was always up to the challenge. I was never afraid to do this. And so when somebody said, hey, you think you can do this? I would always say yes. And you know, if you don't, if you fail in this business, they let you know in a hurry. So I've been fortunate not to have failed, to have succeeded more. Not like a baseball player. You know, if you go one for three in baseball, you're a good hitter. If you have one for three on shows, you're pretty much fired. So it's, it's a little harder than, again, I can't <laughs> hit a fastball or a curveball. So I'm not trying to downplay the importance and how good it is to be a baseball player. I'm just saying your failure rate is not as, well, not as you, acceptable. You better be careful, Tony, because as we all know, a Zamboni driver can play in the National Hockey League. So there's still hope for you yet. Exactly. Only goalie, though. I don't know if he can skate up and down <laughs> and, uh, you know, and muck it up in the corners with the boys. <laughs> so I have to ask you, growing up, there were two voices in Americana that everyone wanted to know, everyone wanted to hear or meet the face behind. So one of them was the AOL Welcome You've Got Mail. And the second one was, you know, the, the bumper voice for ESPN Radio. What was that guy like? That's, that's the great Jim Cutler. And I don't know if you know Jim, but Jim's voice is everywhere. So Jim Cutler is a great guy. And I still see him every year. And he's an incredible guy. And he, he's from New England, but he lives in New York now. And so he, does, he did all the – and he still does the ESPN stuff. And he still – you'll hear him on every network. You'll, you'll turn on your TV. You'll hear Chicago, W, uh, you know, the Superstation, and WGN, and you'll hear Jim Cutler doing it. So he's been one of the great talents in this business. And he sits in his studio every day, and he gets – back in the day, he used to have to send the tapes out. You know, they would send him scripts, and then he'd have to record them and then send them out express mail – now it's everything's done down the line. He gets the scripts, he pulls it up on his screen, and he reads them, and they get right away. It's right back there, boom, in your radio station. It's incredible. So then you go off, you go off to Fox, and you work with uh, Andrew Siciliano. Yep. Who Is was he another still young guy? Yeah, Andrew Siciliano was a great part. He was a young kid, and I say young kid. I was, let's see, 19, 2000. That's when we yep. started Fox Sports Radio. So 2000, Andrew and I were partners, and he was from the Washington, D.C. area. So he grew up on the East Coast, went to Syracuse. That's pretty much 90% of the broadcasters in this business. It's amazing how many people the Newhouse School up there at Syracuse churns out, and they're legendary, legendary radio talents. And you can go down the list, Bob Costas, it's endless. So Andrew was another Syracuse guy who was working in D.C., moved out, and he was an update guy at Fox Sports Radio. And so Andrew and I got along great, and they put him on the air with me, and the rest was history. So it was a lot of fun working with him. So I keep putting my elbow on my, uh, on my tablet there, messing up the audio. I apologize. Okay, uh, okay. And so, so Andrew and I were, were partners. We traveled a lot. And I was sort of like his dad. I was probably the same age as his dad. So he looked at me as a father figure. But we were also guys who went out. we go to the Super Bowls together. We'd stay up all night. Remember, we were back. We were on the air 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific time. You know, so that's 8 to noon. But when we would go out on the West Coast, you know, or a Super Bowl out West, we, we couldn't stay out all night. And when we did, we would just go right back to the station and do the show. So it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of, a lot of fun together. And Andrew then went on and went to the NFL Network. He was the original guy 
after I left. He was the original guy on the on, on the uh, Direct TV, the first ever Red Zone channel on Direct TV. And now, of course, the NFL Network has. So Andrew's been doing the NFL uh, Red Zone channel on Sunday afternoons, I think, for a decade now. So he's a great talent. He's on the NFL Network. You hear his voice in a lot of places. So I don't have anything to do with his success. I just happened to work with him, and people heard him and saw how great he was. And he's still, to this day, one of the great talents in this business. It's amazing because, you know, you started at, at, at ESPN. You were with Oberman and Dan Patrick. Mm-hmm. Dan still has his radio show, one of the best in the business. Yep. Went to Fox, and Rome was there, I believe. I think he was at, at Fox when you were there. Well, actually, Another Jim big name. Premier, yeah, Jim worked for Premier Radio Networks, which was a standalone show. It was part of the Fox radio uh, family. Network, right. Yeah, but Jim worked for Premier, which is the syndicator of, of uh, a lot of people. Uh, most notably, uh, uh, what, uh, the, I'm sorry, I'm on brain dead now, but uh, Rush Limbaugh. So they had yes. Rush Limbaugh, they had Dr. Laura, they had a bunch of syndicated standalone shows. So Jim was always put into the Fox radio, that, that time slot, nine to noon Pacific time. So Jim Rome would come on after us, even though he was not technically a Fox Sports radio show. So they had my show in the morning with Andrew and then Jim Rome, and then a really good lineup for the rest of the day. And so that's how Fox started in 2000 up in Sherman Oaks, California. But I've been so fortunate to work with amazingly talented people. Some of them young guys who are starting up and moving their way up the business. And a lot of them legendary broadcasters where I learned a lot from those. As When I started at 18, I looked up to the people who are so much better than me and I one day wanted to be. And so I know most people think that way, but a lot of young people today, and again, I don't want to sound like an old guy saying young people today, these kids today, uh, there's a lot of people who really, really, really want to work hard and learn how to do it. And I always tell them when they say, I say, go out and look somebody that you admire and say, I want to be like them. And when people ask me, you know, how do I be like you, Tony Bruno? I said, you can't be like me because I'm me and that's who I am. I didn't try to be somebody else. I took my talents and I looked at the people who were doing this at the highest levels. And I say, I want to be the best there is. Be yourself. And a lot of people think, you know, there's an act, there's a shtick. There's not. It's just being comfortable enough to, in your own skin and your own ability and your own knowledge and your own ability to work hard and put together good radio shows and good content, that if you do that and people like you, you're going to succeed. So the whole thing I tell young people now is this is hard. It's not easy, even though there's a lot of opportunities. The big-time jobs and the $5 million a year jobs, those are gone. You know, it's right, especially now during the, the – COVID-19 epidemic, a lot of people are, are being let go in all parts of our medium, not just in our medium, in all parts of life. And so print media, bloggers, you know, bloggers can do their own thing because normally they're working for themselves, but people who work for big companies are being let go every single week with no sports. You know, there's not the demand for content. So great people are out of work every single day, radio, TV, uh, newspapers and newspapers have been in trouble for a long long time so we're all being affected by this so that's the harder part right now trying to do radio shows without content and so one of my advantages is that i've always been able to do content other than sports and when, for example classic example andrew and siciliano and i were on the air the morning of 9 11. i was I listening to you i know exactly where i was we're all of a sudden, we're on the air. We're doing our normal, having fun, talking NBA, talking Michael Jordan. And we had the monitors up in the studio and in Los Angeles. 
And all of a sudden, we see the vision of the tower, the first tower in smoke. And then, again, we don't have the sound on. We're doing a radio show live. And this is, now remember, it was nine just after 9 a.m. East Coast time. I was so dropping my video. dog at the groomer. I know exactly and, where it was, and you were on my radio. And so Andrew and I had to make, and Andrew and I both have news backgrounds. So fortunately, we had to immediately transition from being yucking it up, talking about Michael Jordan and the NBA to, oh my God, what's going on in New York? And at first we thought oh, it was a private plane, a small plane crashed into the World, World Trade Center Tower number one. And then we realized when all the monitors went to the vision and we saw the second plane that we had to either get off the air or be journalists for a change. And journalists <laughs> means we had to get the information. So luckily we had Fox News Channel and we had a lot of people we could bring up on the air to get the latest because we weren't there. We were just watching monitors. And we were picking up not just Fox News Channel, we were picking up NBC or whoever was doing a live shot. Larry King, who was in Los Angeles, was listening to the show. And he called in and added his two cents because there was that, remember that third plane, that, yeah. that fourth plane that nobody knew what was going on. There were people thinking that LA was going to be hit next. And Pat O'Brien, who was obviously the NBA guy and access Hollywood, he was a regular on our show, and he was supposed to be on one of those flights leaving Boston to come out west. So all these people were wondering, where is that plane? Where's the plane? Who's going to be the next city hit? So we're doing live as it happens. The biggest story, certainly in my lifetime, while you're on the air, because you know in the sports world, normally in morning drive, you don't have breaking news other than a coach being fired or uh, you know a team made the playoffs last night and you're hearing it first here early in the morning. So that was our real first big, big situation. And Andrew and I were so engulfed in this story because we were witnessing just like everyone else was listening. We couldn't run away from this. So we stayed on the air for seven hours. I remember we off the air, not because we were heroes or anything special, but because this is one of those stories that you never experienced in your lifetime for the most part. And if, when you do, you can't run away from it. So yeah, the continuity was important. So like three or four in the afternoon Pacific time, it was, you know what? We needed to be here. And it's one of my proudest days as a broadcaster to be able to prove to people that instead of running away from it, we wanted to make sure that we embraced it and made our awesome audience who were also wondering what was going on a part of being part of history on the saddest day in American history as far as a terrorist attack on this country. All right, take a take a quick breath for a second. Let me pay a bill or two here. Okay. As Sorry you know, it, I mean, I had to ramble there because that was a long story, but No, no, it's not that that's why I have you here. Uh, Sleep Envy is more than a mattress. Customize your mattress by taking the 1 minute quiz. Ships in a box right to your door. Try it for 100 nights in the comfort of your home. Shipping is always free. If you're not satisfied, they pick it up and refund you. Today and today only, use Press Row at checkout to get 25% off. 10% of their sales go to feeding the hungry during the coronavirus uh, response fund. Again, that's go to sleepenvy.com. Enter, enter the code Press Row at checkout for 25% off your purchase. Lastly, I want to tell you about good friends of mine at Toronto-based jewelry, Vanderhoot Jewelry. That's V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-U-T jewelry.com. If you enter... Sports 20 at, at uh, checkout. They will take 20% off your purchase there for custom-made jewelry. Now we're back. Hope you got a good breath in. I got some sleep envy now, though. There you go. Well, you should go get a mattress. I got to get a mattress tonight. 
That was good. Go. Burned me. That's. I like that. I like. Oh. Is that a Canadian? Or is that an American company? It's a Canadian company, but they ship to all 50 states. And uh, I can probably help you get an even better deal than the 20%. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you, sir. Okay. Do I get any lovely parting gifts for appearing, uh, Jonah, on the program? Yeah, I'll get you a special discount on the mattress. Can you get me a Toronto Maple Leaf uh, trinket of some kind? How about a mask? Would you wear a Toronto Maple Leaf mask <laughs> if I got your mask? No, I need a Flyers mask because hopefully the Flyers, as we, but we were talking before we, we came on here about hockey. And whether or not you're going, but you're pessimistic about the reboot up there in the in the hub cities in Toronto and Edmonton, huh? Yeah, I just think, I think these I think these guys are gonna they're gonna do male hockey player things when they're not on the ice, and I think, I just think it's gonna get bad, as we've seen in in places like Texas and Florida and Arizona, when when people get together, the numbers tend to spike, and I just don't think that's gonna bode well. But what do I know, right? Well, you know, you're a hot you're. You're Canadian, aren't you? <laughs> I am, you know, but I, but you're not. See, the good thing is, a lot of people don't like hockey. It's like there's a lot of sports fans that don't they don't watch soccer because it's not an American sport, and then there are a lot of people who hate hockey because it's not one of the big three. And to me, I've always loved. I love all sports, and I love hockey. Obviously, growing up in Philly and watching hockey from the from the Flyers in the '67 expansion draft, it's a great sport, and it's a great great sport that you would think younger people who play it a lot would appreciate it because of the speed and the, the skills involved in playing it. So I'm positive. I want there to be hockey. Do I know if there's going to be hockey? You know, the, the one thing about hockey, hockey and the NBA are the only two sports that are doing it in hub cities. And we're seeing the NBA play. The NBA teams are arriving in Orlando. Uh, the Canadian government is, is not doing the 14 day quarantine to allow players to get back in so they can start playing. Because I hear they want to have the, the Stanley Cup has to be decided by October 2nd, the latest. So we all know about ice conditions in the summer. And I'm sure the refrigeration systems are much better now in Toronto and Edmonton and most <laughs> NBA buildings. And so I'm sure they'll be able to make good ice. Uh, but I agree, there's going to be concerns. But the, the, the thing is, these players are all going to be with their own groups. They're not going to be running loose in Toronto if you're in the East or Edmonton, are they? You believe that there's going to be that kind of crazy hockeyness where hockey players go on road trips? They're going to be in the same place for a long time. Isn't the old adage that boys will be boys? I mean, don't you think? I mean, I think that's the problem. I think that if we actually had a virtual bubble and you could keep them inside that virtual bubble, it'd be safer. And I think, this is just my opinion, I think where Major League Baseball is nuts is having people flying around going to different cities. I think that's just a recipe for disaster. And going into their own stadiums and then going home to their own families at night. And, and so I agree with you about baseball. But I mentioned the stats. Baseball has had the fewest. They have had 66 positives out of 3,740 tests, 2.8%. So to me, that's a positive sign. Does that Absolutely. mean it's going to stay that way? I don't know. But we're talking about world-class athletes here. And are there world-class athletes who die? Absolutely. We see Jim Fix, you know, the Olympic runner who dropped dead of a heart attack while he was running. And so a lot of people have conditions they don't know about. But certainly when you're talking about young athletes in the primes of their career, they're less likely to get it. Like old guys like me, I'd be worried if I were hanging out with hockey players. I was worried of hanging out them back in the days when I was young. You know, you go have a couple of brewskis with the boys and a couple of Molsons, and you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> so if you had to pick a sport, what is your sport? Football. I mean, football – 
not because I'm in, I live in an NFL city, but I think the NFL season, the fact that you have one game a week, when I'm talking about individual teams, it's Thursday nights and Monday nights, but mm-hmm. each, each week is important. There's 16 weeks and every week you have the build up to the next game. And so I think football has it perfect. And football, let's look at it when you consider all the different sports leagues, they have been the one that has been, they've also been affected, but their seasonal plan has not been affected because they got the Super Bowl in before the pandemic. You know, they got the, they didn't, nobody cared about the Pro Bowl anyway, but then they got their draft done virtually. They got the free agency done without having to bring players in and out. So football has gotten the best break, I think, if there's such a thing as a break with a pandemic, but they've been able to continue their business throughout this and the next step will be you know playing in their own buildings without fans some teams are talking the baltimore ravens are talking about bringing in fourteen thousand fans into their ballpark down in baltimore so we'll see how that plays out but i think the fact that football teams will also be going home the players will also be going home to their families at night and they'll be playing in their own buildings and then traveling to other teams so that's the fear for me and the concern that i'm sure the players have and all the organizations do but football at least is at the point where they're getting ready to do training camp just like the nba is in orlando just like baseball is they're at their own ballparks i'm sure in toronto they're out in the you know in their ballpark. interest god game tonight exactly so this this is where we'll find out you know how good the testing is and how many people test and how many people will have to be hospitalized if they're just people testing positive and they don't have to hospitalize you know, we saw that the NASCAR driver, Jimmy Johnson, who tested positive. Two weeks later, he's back in a car. And so that's the positive stuff that I see, that young athletes can get it and not even realize they have it and then be healthy enough when they're tested daily. And it looks like they're testing ex- extensively, especially with the athletes. So that's why I feel positive about this. Not that there's going to be flawless, but at least that we'll see sports being played again this fall and maybe in a couple of weeks. We, we haven't heard of any pro athlete that I know of who's gotten, who's tested positive and gotten really sick, have we? No, not at all. I know we saw in golf a couple of weeks ago with the caddies who got sick for a, pop, a couple of popular golfers. So what they did, they used the precautions. The PGA Tour said, hey, you know what? Those guys won't play. And they didn't play. Their caddies went home. Everybody went home. And now here we are a couple of weeks later, and we're not hearing about more cases expanding or more players testing positive. So I think golf, because of the no fans and the fact that they can socially distance better than a lot of sports. I mean, hockey and football, it's pretty hard to socially distance. You know, they're talking, the NFL came up with these crazy rules. So, oh, you know, today. you can't do this. You can tackle, but by, when you get on the sideline, you better be six <laughs> feet apart. So it's almost like lunacy to see some of these rules and regulations and saying, how the hell are they going to do this? How are they going to say, you can tackle, but by the way, after the game, don't do any of those jersey exchanges right. like they do don't in soccer and doing football. I saw a lot of it doesn't make any logical sense, even for people like me, who I refer to myself as Dr. Tony Grouchy, not Dr. Tony Fauci, because I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody does. And so when I hear the rules and I see the rules and I'm like, really? <laughs> and you think people are going to just sit there and say, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> So, so let me ask you, I have two questions, two more questions for you. So one, um, one of the things they've talked about when sports come back is the death of the sideline reporter, the post-game or, or during-game interview, 
a lack of accessibility for the media to the athletes. What's your, what's your take on that? I like the mic'd up stuff. I and mean, we saw it in golf and then we realized right away that golfers did, said they wanted to be mic'd up. But when they would hit a bad shot, they didn't want to be mic'd up and they would just be golfers. They would use profanity and you would think they would use a tape delay. So I have no problems with miking players up. We see it happen all the time. Uh, that the, the, the sideline reporters, I agree. But, you know, maybe put a sideline reporter in a, in a hazmat suit. You know, then maybe they bring back the tower where Booger McFarlane on ESPN a couple of years ago was hanging a high over. They, they were way ahead of their time. They blew that Monday night football show up, and Booger McFarlane was ahead of his time. He was in a crane that was safely over the field with no one was close enough. There was no way he could give out coronavirus or receive coronavirus. And they got rid of that thing. Maybe they bring back the Booger Mobile and put somebody in on a crane. They have all the cameras from different angles. So I'm not worried about the technology part of it. As far as talking to athletes, do they really have anything to say during an event anyway, for the most part? There's lo you have lots of brothers and sisters who, who have professed loudly that the teams are going to use this to limit access to players. Um, well, you're, you're probably right. And I, it makes sense. I mean, I have no problem with the safety part of it. You know, they, they, they're waiting for the coach to, to give you a couple of notes at halftime. Uh, yeah, the guys, you know, we should have played better on defense. I mean, let's be honest. That's just filler programming. The coaches don't want to do it. The, 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 the sideline reporters don't really want to do it. You don't get anything out of that. So, again, I don't want to see anybody fired, but I still think there will be a room for analysts. Look at the golf channel, what they're doing. I mean, they have people in different studios all over the country. They're watching the same event. They may not be there right next to the green, but at least they can do an interview with a long microphone and those kinds of things. So I think there's a, there's a way that, you know, we're not giving them enough credit because we're looking at all the lunacy of the rules, but I think they've got this figured out, especially the testing. That's the bottom line. If they get people tested and athletes don't act like idiots, which many of them tend to do, I, I think we'll be able to get these sports played. Again, I'm hoping, I don't know for a fact, I'm hoping, and especially with football, because we saw the Big Ten and a lot of conferences now going to do they're going to do conference, conference only. only. So they're, they're thinking of ways to try to alleviate a lot of the travel, like Ohio State's not going to play Ball State, you know, or Bowling Green in their opener where they would be favored by 52 points. You know, that's one of those exhibition games that colleges put out there, like Ohio State brings Bowling Green in, gives them a paycheck, lays a beat down on them, and everybody goes home happy except the guy sitting at home watching a 72-3 to game. So those are the kinds of games they don't really need to play. Just play your own conference this year if they're going to do that and see how it goes. So here's my second and my final question. You've seen it all. So, so you've lit up some of the biggest networks. You've been on local stations. Clearly, the medium has changed. Um, you don't have to listen live anymore. You can, you can download everybody as a podcast, listen to segment by segment, pick and choose. You can be your own human jukebox if you want. What's the future? What do you think the future of sports radio is? I, I think for sports radio will always be there. I mean, you, you look, Sirius XM, the channel that I'm on, which is the Dan Patrick channel on yeah. channel 211, it's Dan Patrick, Rich Eisen, and then me. So we got a triple header of ESPN talent, former ESPN guys, all back to back to back. So I think those types of channels, in fact, the Sirius XM, their most popular channels are fantasy football. And so there's so many different facets of sports that are keeping the thing, the gambling component now which is spreading because that's what people demanded. You know, the NFL was like, oh, we can't have gambling. 
And then, of course, they were starting to accept fantasy sports. And then people said that fantasy sports is a form of gambling. So I think it'll always be there. And you nailed it, Jonah. It's on demand. We live in an on-demand world. Back in the day when we did ESPN radio in the, in the 90s, you know, you had to listen to the show or you didn't hear it. There was no way to go back and listen to it or play it in your car. It was live and then it was gone unless they pulled, you know, interviews and played it in a best of show. So I think it'll always, spoken word especially, spoken word will always, you can't, you can't have robots doing spoken word broadcasting. Music stations, you see what they're doing, getting rid of the DJs and syndicating, guys doing voice tracks in one studio and eliminating a lot of talent. But I think what we do, there's always a place for it because they can find your show, they can find my show, they can listen to it when they want, they can listen to it live, they can watch it on Twitch. So there's so many ways to absorb content now and they'll always be it. And we don't even know what's gonna happen in the future. It's just gonna be easier for people to get what they want when they want it. And it started out with TV, with you know the VCRs, you know, set your tape recorder, set your DVR, yeah. and now most people consume even their favorite news shows. They don't have to be there at six o'clock to watch the local news or seven o'clock or eight o'clock. Everything is on demand now. And that's the world we live in. And it's always, I don't think it's going to change. We're not going to go back to, hey, let's go back to old refrigerators and put a black and white TV back in the house. It's all about progressing the, uh, the technology to make it easier for people to absorb information and idiotic content if you choose. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. I will tell you that my fondest memories of the Tony Bruno show over the years, uh, unfortunately had little to do with sports. You did the best job covering the various lockouts through the years. You were the only guy who, who told it like it is. Uh, it didn't kowtow to the commissioners when they came on, gave the agents shit when they deserved shit and told the players they were full of it too. My fond, I, I remember that, that baseball, the baseball season that, that was lost. Uh, those are my fondest memories of your shows. Well, thank you. I, I've always prided myself as much as people say, well, this is a guy who's a goof and he doesn't really know what he's talking about. I've always tried to be a straight shooter. I try not to offend. I try not to criticize or ridicule. You know, I, I've worked with Keith Olbermann and I covered the first baseball strike at ESPN. And then, of course, we did actually before ESPN. And then, and then we were on the air during the last strike season you know, where they shut it down and we brought in guys like John Sterling with the Yankee voice to sit in the studio because these guys were all out of work when we lost that season and there was no playoffs right. or World Series. So I'm proud of what we've done. And, and the, the, the thing that I love the most is when there's news to cover and there's breaking news because that gets the blood boiling. That's what, that's what we're all about. We are information first, entertainment second, and that's the way I'll always do this. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. Hopefully uh, when there's actual real sports to talk about, uh, we can have you back on and do it all over again. It was my honor, Jason. I really appreciate uh, your kind words and having me on the show. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.